Well, thank you for the chance to speak with you. And for 17 years now, I've been teaching a course on the doctrine of humanity. I see some of you who have taken some of those courses, and so I've been teaching that. And during the, the, the latter years of teaching that course, there have been several issues within that that have been surging in interest. And so when I was asked to speak on three or four current issues that you need to be abreast of, I thought about these issues within the field of theological anthropology. I won't be able to deal in detail with any of them. Each of these could take several hours' discussion. My goal is simply to alert you to the debate, give you some bibliography, and that's the reason for the handout that you have in front of you. But first, to place these issues in context, let me give you a brief overview of the field of theological anthropology. I give you here eight key elements of biblical teaching. Uh, I see them all as central, important doctrines. Uh, I could describe all of them, and we could have some time on all of them. Uh, but for our time's sake, I've chosen to focus on three of them. And so I'll just mention that they all seem to me to be either introduced or implied in Genesis 1 through 3. So there from the beginning, uh, we're created. Dr. Heathley spoke about that a couple of years ago. Uh, image of God, we could spend a lot of time on that. But the third one is the first one we'll discuss. They were created male and female. And discussions surrounding that have been so profound, so he did that, that our lion's share of time will be spent on that issue. And we are made to work, but fifth, we created a complex constitution. This is an idea that has received challenges from biblical studies, philosophy, and neuroscience. And so with a, a group like this, where there are students in biblical studies and philosophy and other disciplines, I thought it would be a good one for us. And then the last was on the idea that we are not, as we were created, we're fallen. And that's been a standard view in, in the Christian theology, but again, a part of the, the narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. But in recent years, even within evangelicalism, there's been some denial of the historical fall. Now, that'll be our third issue. So we're looking here at three challenges, traditional understandings, maleness and females, our constitution, and then the historical nature of the fall. So the first issue, we are created male and female. Well, the traditional Christian view is this is a good gift of God. Differences between men and women are God-designed and good, meant to provide blessing for us. And so with the differentiation, there's a, a chance for a mutually enriching relationship. Each brings that relationship strengths and weaknesses the other does not have. And then with the heterosexual marriage, sexual differentiation allows for the personal bond of union, sexual union, that one flesh union that's almost definitive of marriage. Along with that, we're so designed that that sexual union also provides for procreation, the conceiving of children. So uh, our, our sexuality gives all of us the possibility of relationship within marriage, bonding and procreation. Those are the two purposes of sexuality and marriage. And thus, uh, sex outside of that marriage is seen as being prohibited because it doesn't serve those two ends. It doesn't serve bonding. It doesn't serve procreation. Uh, well, uh, I'm going to look at two challenges to that understanding. Now, th there's a third I didn't mention, but there's a, a, a widespread challenge to this idea of uh, sex is for marriage in the acceptance of premarital sex. Uh, and, and whereas homosexuality, uh, these are, have a very small proportion, uh, this is huge, but it's not debated. And so it's, it's been ignored, so I'm going to mention that one. Uh, two challenges then to the traditional understanding. Uh, first, uh, from homosexuality. You're all aware of this debate. The last generation, there have been voices from within the Christian, even the evangelical Christian community, arguing for what's called an affirming view of same-sex relationships. And without trying to be exhausted, I want to mention a few of the key recent works and then summarize their arguments. The one I see referenced most often recently is James Bronson. 
Bible of Gender Sexuality, Reframing the Church's Debate. Along with that, I was introduced recently to William Loder, uh, Making Sense of Sex. Uh, he's written five books on early New, Christ New Testament era background issues. This is summarizing all five of those books in one. Okay? So he's there. Dale Martin, a prominent professor at Yale, a number of essays on uh, homosexuality in his book, Sex and the Single Savior. On a more popular level, Matthew Vine's book, uh, God and the Christian, has caught a lot of stir on popular circles. So uh, those are a selective reading of some of the most important books uh, on affirming, those who would give an affirming view. Then I'll give you some of the mo most tra important traditional views. Uh, Robert Gagnon, his book on the Bible and homosexual practice is referred to most often, it's the most thorough response, exegetically, hermeneutically, the thickest book on this topic, but it's 2001. So while it hits most of the major issues, it doesn't respond directly to all the issues that Brownson, some of those others raised. Kevin Young, not an academician, but he's a, a pastor, does a really good job with the text, focusing simply on biblical teaching on homosexuality. Wesley Hill's book is important because he is himself a same-sex orientation person. This is his exclusive orientation, and he has struggled with it, but he says, I feel compelled to support the traditional view on this, and so his book is a courageous one, uh, but also a very personal uh, story there. My personal favorite is Preston Sprinkle's book, People to be Loved, Why Homosexual, and not just an issue. He's a New Testament scholar, but in his research for this book, he reached both New Testament uh, studies and the gay community, making friends within that community and asking them, am I saying these things in a way uh, that is not unnecessarily offensive in my language, my terminology, and so he, he's trying to, to run his material by them, and so I'm very impressed um, by his uh, uh, tone in that book. And then two multiple views, Dan Villa, a very well-known scholar, and Robert Gagnon, the two views, a book there from Portress, and then a Zondervan Two Points Counterpoint book, um, two views there, two on the affirming side, William Loder and uh, Megan DeFranson, two on the traditional side, Stephen Holmes and Wesley Hill. So they have a, a point, counterpoint back and forth across the, the, the area. So uh, I want to get, look first as the affirming argument. Now again, uh, I can't cover all of them. Uh, Gagnon lists seven specifics in his book. Uh, I think they can, can fall into two overall categories. Uh, the first argument is simply that we're talking about the Bible only condemns certain forms of homosexual relationships. Exploitative ones, those driven by lust, and those that involve abuse, a, a master of a slave, adult of a child. Uh, those things are, are, are prohibited. Those for whom this is unnatural. So uh, those are prohibited, but consensual, uh, uh, faithful, uh, enduring, sex relationships, they aren't spoken to at all. Uh, so simply the, the prohibition verses don't apply to what they're arguing for, which is the legitimacy of stable, enduring, consensual, same-sex relationships. So this doesn't apply. Uh, second, now th th this goes into detail in New Testament backgrounds, both Jewish, Second Temple literature, uh, Greco-Roman culture, all those types of things, trying to show uh, the world of the New Testament did not have in view these types of consensual, faithful, same-sex relationship. Just not in the, in the picture there. Uh, so that's one approach. Uh, second approach is, well, if the Bible does condemn all forms of homosexuality, we can now go beyond the Bible. 
we know more about human nature, more about same-sex orientation. The Bible doesn't know those things. doesn't know that for some people, this is their natural orientation, perhaps even their genetic orientation. And to require celibacy of them is cruel, uh, vicious, and therefore, uh, if the Bible seems to prohibit this, we need to go beyond the Bible and say, instead of the, the few verses focusing on homosexuality, uh, look at the theme of love, compassion, mercy, those types of things. And so we can go beyond the Bible in, in different ways. Now, those with some evangelical background, they seem to gravitate toward the, the first type of argument that allows them to affirm the Bible's authoritative. It's just not speaking to this issue. Uh, although I was surprised that, that uh, uh, William Loder uh, goes to the second. He said, yeah, the Bible condemns all forms of homosexual behavior, uh, but we need to go beyond the Bible. Uh, the second argument is, is again, uh, more open for those from mainline or non-evangelical backgrounds, but they also go both and forth, back and forth on these. So uh, these are the two basic categories. Either uh, the Bible is not speaking about what we're talking about, so these verses don't apply, or if they do apply, we have new information that allows us to go beyond them. What's the traditional response? Well, Gagnon and Sprinkle, as New Testament scholars, go very deeply into New Testament background, New Testament literature, those types of things that say, well, yes, exploitative, uh, master, slave, uh, adult, child, uh, those things are condemned as well. But there were also more faithful, consensual forms known in New Testament era. And more importantly, Sprinkle makes the point uh, that the, the focus is uh, the reason for prohibition. These things are contrary to nature. Romans 1 especially, things like that. So that, that's his basis. Uh, not that they're lustful. Uh, not that they're exploitative. Uh, not that they're abusive. And they're contrary to nature. And so uh, uh, that's the response to the biblical idea. You can go a lot further with Gagnon and Sprinkle, but that's basically the response. So they take, to take the second approach of going beyond the Bible. Well, they say, well, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us everything about all aspects of human nature. But where it does speak, it is inerrant in all its teaching. And the teaching on sexuality is not just the, the individual verses on homosexuality, but Genesis 2, the purpose for maleness and femaleness. Again, uh, the, the description there in Genesis 2, it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother. What's the reason there? Because the distinction of maleness and females, there, there's a purpose there, the intention. This should lead us into relationships of heterosexual marriage where there's a possibility of bonding in intimate one flesh union and the possibility of procreation. If it doesn't serve bonding and procreation, it's not marriage. It's not this is why a man leaves his father and mother. Uh, so they say uh, that it's not just the individual verses, it's the whole theology of sexuality that's, that's involved there. And as to those that say, well, for some people, this is natural. Well, not as uh, the dif different definitions of natural. Natural today is actually fallen. Natural as God intended, as God created, that's what we're looking to. So those are the two responses uh, to those issues. Again, this is only scratching the surface of these issues, things like that. Uh, so at least be aware of, of those types of things. Now, again, uh, uh, the second challenge is different. So this first challenge, homosexuality, been around for a while. So may, many of you may be familiar with these issues. Uh, the second issue is much more recent, uh, the challenge to what would someone call the oppressive, simplistic gender binary. 
what I call the goodness and givenness of maleness and femaleness. Okay? So the, this is a given thing that God gives to us. This is being challenged. I saw recently a book on Generation Z, those born 96 to 2014. James Emery White says this, their attitude is an increasing sexual fluidity that refuses either the homosexual or heterosexual label. Uh, the idea is that both labels are oppressive, insufficient. Uh, so uh, William Loder says, uh, uh, not all people are simply either male or female. Megan DeFranza, not all people are fully or clearly male or female. Uh, so they say this is a, a simplistic, oppressive gender binary. Need more options than just these two. The first place we see this is in transgenderism or gender dysphoria. This affects a, a very small portion of the population, estimates between 1 in 200 to 1 in 500. Uh, those that, are, that do this suspect it's underreported. Some people don't want the, their problem to be out, so we're not sure about the exact numbers there. Uh, so it's uh, less than 1%, but in North Carolina has become a, a very big issue due to the controversy over House Bill 2. It refers to those who experience a conflict between uh, their biological makeup and their uh, gender self-perception. Normally those two things are congruent, but in some people, in a, a very small number, uh, there's a clash there. What causes this conflict is unknown, uh, but the experience of conflict uh, does seem to be real, and at least in some cases is a very painful, unchosen thing. Now, in some very high-profile cases of transgender individuals, uh, they seem to have a very strong assertion of personal autonomy. I can choose to be what gender I want to be. And also a social construction of reality, uh, mind you, is what I see it to be. And so uh, there's that motivation upon some. But among other people, it's simply simply I'm struggling to live with who I am trying to find peace within my own self. And so uh, uh, they're not seeking, I, I think, to be uh, uh, sinfully autonomous or worrying about social construction. Uh, they simply live a, a very real, intense conflict that in some cases is close to suicidal. Uh, there are two full-length books on this I'm aware of, uh, at least by Christian Mark Yarhouse, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, approaches the topic as a clinical psychologist and an evangelical Christian. And he has extensive experience counseling these persons and their families. And so I'm, I'm grateful for someone who has not just the, the theological knowledge, but someone who has experience with, with these people. Uh, Andrew Walker, guy in the transgender debate, uh, works with the ERLC. He looks at the biblically, theological, and public policy implications. Also has a very helpful appendix in his book of all the new terms, cisgender, trigender, uh, unigender, intergender, uh, all these terms that are being made in th this, this discussion. I looked for a book arguing in favor of gender fluidity. I could not find a book out there yet. Uh, the, there are the articles online, things like that. Um, but there is some movement in public policy issues. California uh, just came up with an option you can have on your driver's license, um, uh, male, female, or non-binary. Uh, uh, so the, the opposition to uh, this oppressive gender binary is involved in the, in the transgender debate. Well, there's very little explicit in Scripture discussing transgenderism. There's a verse, Deuteronomy 22, 5, about uh, not cross-dressing, but most commentators see that's associated with, with pagan practices. 
That's the reason for the prohibition. Uh, but a basic biblical assumption seems to be uh, that your maleness, female, is given to you by God. Not something you choose, something that's given by God, not personally chosen or socially constructed. Further assumption is that God's gift of sexuality is usually clearly seen in your biological makeup. So the counsel given to those struggling with transgenderism is uh, learn to live uh, in concert, in harmony, in accordance with the sex that God has given you. At the same time, not denying the reality of their struggle or the difficulty in coming to terms with it. Not blaming them for that, but recognizing that this is God's gift. Uh, learn to accept it. Now, I, I want to think that sexual is more than just our biological makeup. Uh, we, we see in, in our experience, there's certain typically male and female responses to situations. That I, uh, I use the phrase mode of orientation, lenses through which you see the world. And I don't want to think that's involved, uh, but the difficulty is there are always exceptions to those patterns. And the absence of a biblical command, males should have this personality, females this personality. So in the absence of something more than that, the one concrete clue we have is our physical makeup. Uh, so this is the only clue we have. This is God's intention for our sexuality. So we're called to live in keeping with that intention, although reckon the profound effects of the fall on both our bodies and our self-perception. So that's one challenge to the oppressive gender binary or the goodness givenness of maleness, femaleness. Second challenge is even uh, uh, more uh, rare, uh, but it's found among those who historically were called hermaphrodites, but are now called intersex persons. So this is the new category, the LGBTQI community, I for intersex. This is an umbrella concept. You cover a wide range of variations in sex development from uh, uh, ambiguous genitalia to uh, places where the, your genitals don't match your chromosomes, so you have XX chromosomes and male genitals, or vice versa. Uh, a number of different ideas like that. I only know of one full-length Christian treatment of this topic, Megan DeFranz, The Sex Difference in Christian Theology, a 2015 Urzma book. She says uh, uh, she gives seven of these conditions, but notes these are only the most common ones. Uh, they're more so the rate of incidence depends upon how many of these you include. Uh, one uh, statement gives one in 4,500 live births. Another, for De France, it gives one in 2,500 live births. So De France, let's see, these people come to a challenge to the binary sex model. But Andrew Walker correctly says, well, no, because they're not claiming a third thing. They say, uh, I'm either male or female. I just didn't know which. So not really claiming something other than male or female. Difficult is they're saying which they are. And they, they're not claiming to be something other than that. But they do a challenge to the idea that our biological makeup will always tell us clearly what sex we are. It seems that the presence of such persons may have been known in the New Testament world. Matthew 19, 12 refers to those who were eunuchs who were born that way. This may have been some people like this in that world. I think their presence underscores what I've already mentioned profound effects of the fall. In terms of same-sex orientation, disordered desires, result of the fall. Transgender, lack of congruence between self-perception, biological makeup, again, I think product of the fall. For intersex, the fall's effect on our very bodily makeup. 
Uh, and so here we pray for those to whom the doctor says, after your birth, I'm not sure what your child is. What should I put on the, on the birth? Should I put boy or girl on the birth certificate? And it's not clear from the physical makeup there. And so here parents have the agonizing choice of saying, well, uh, uh, what should I do? Uh, make a choice there. And then the, the choice will be followed likely by plastic surgery to arrange the physical parts of this person's body. And, and then they face the, the possibility around puberty. Your child will say, I've always felt I was the other. Well, again, uh, this is a, a horrible, uh, heartbreaking situation. Again, I don't think it really comes a challenge to the givenness, the goodness of sexuality. It's say, which are they? Which gifts has God given, maleness or femaleness? And again, Andrew Walker says, well, transgender is a psychological issue. Intersex is a physical issue. Not the same thing at all. In terms of a response to these individuals, I think past responses of love and care may be more called for than theological beyond the affirmation, well, this is, is the result of the fall. And if they push for a theological response, again, well, there's some people born blind, some born deaf, some born with other disabilities. Your disability is this confusion on this, but I'll acknowledge that perhaps nothing could be more difficult for one's identity than uncertainty about your basic element of sexuality. Here we deal with a fallen world filled with all types of messy things like that. But we also trust that God's grace is sufficient even for such heart-wrenching situations as these. So these are the two challenges, same-sex relationships and then challenges to the gender binary. These are the two things going on. Before I leave, them, I want to mention one book I just finished reading this weekend, Todd Wilson, Mere Sexuality, a takeoff on mere Christianity. It's not very, it's very relatively short, uh, more of a, from a pastor, academic, although he has a PhD from Cambridge, but he's writing a book on the, the theology. What's the basic theology of sexuality from a very clear, I think, astute point of view, but then applying it to all these issues, uh, not exhaustively, uh, but I think very helpfully and with a very pastoral tone. Uh, so these are the first de developments in terms of challenges to our traditional understanding of our creation as male and female. I've uh, spent most of my time here, but I do want to go to two others. Second topic, we are created with a complex constitution. Second issue, second challenge. Now again, traditionally, Christian theology has affirmed there's a complexity in our makeup. We are more than just bodies, as bodies and souls, or bodies and spirits. And so uh, the idea that we can continue to exist after the death of the body, in what's called the intermediate state, has been seen as strong support for that. So when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, well, uh, their body would not be in paradise, they'd be in the grave. So there's something in addition to the body that constitutes human personhood, human nature. And so this complexity has been widely uh, agreed upon for years. Uh, Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, present with, so there's a possibility of life beyond the body, outside the body. Well, this has been standard affair until relatively recently, challenges from biblical studies, philosophy, and neuroscience. And with those in this room from biblical studies, philosophy, and uh, maybe not neuroscience, I thought all three of these would be good for us to be acquainted with. Uh, first of biblical studies. As far back as 1974, George Allen Ladd could say, recent scholarship 
has recognized that such terms as body, soul, and spirit are not different separable faculties of man, but different ways of viewing the whole man. And there has been a movement towards seeing us in holistic terms. Uh, whether that holism excludes ontological dualism is not as clear. One scholar who has advocated ontological monism is uh, New Testament scholar Joel Green, uh, formerly at Fuller, now at Asbury. He claimed biblical scholars are almost unanimous in their conclusion that both Old and New Testaments assume testified to an anthropological monism. Now, interesting, he says there's he, This is in a book with four perspectives on the mind by problem. <laughs> uh, so the very book he's writing in uh, seems to give a, a delight. He makes the case himself, his full-length study, Body, Soul, and Human Life, a 2008 Baker book. Now, I will grant him there has been movement toward affirming uh, more some type of unity in the human constitution. Miller Erickson calls it conditional unity. Wayne Grudem, dichotomy within unity. Lewis and Demarest, complex unity, interacting dichotomy. But none are from anthropological monism and all appeal to the intermediate state. Luke 23, 43, Philippians 1, 23, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. But these are all theologians. I thought, what about biblical scholars? Well, I took those three texts, Luke, Philippians, 2 Corinthians. I went to our library, pulled out all the comments on those three books, started plowing through them. I found 18 that commented on those texts in terms of intermediate state. 12 of 18 affirm that we continue to exist in the intermediate state after the death of the body. So Green's statement of all agree upon anthropological monism is significantly overstated. Okay? Functional unity, yes. Holistic dualism, dualistic holism, yes. But not anthropological monism. Now, one theologian who responds to all three of these, but especially the biblical challenge, is John Cooper in his book, Body, Soul, and Life Everlasting, a 2000 Urban's book that's gone through two editions. He does extensive work on the whole background for shale, intermediate state, the, the terminology, those types of things, and gives, I think, a very convincing case for there must be some type of ontological dualism to allow us to exist apart from the body in the intermediate state. He gives some attention to the challenges from philosophy and neuroscience, but not as much. And so I move secondly to the philosophical challenges. The majority of you among professional philosophers today is materialism, defined by Daniel Dennett as the view that, quote, there's only one sort of stuff, namely matter. So with regard to the traditional mind-brain problem, it resolves it by eliminating the mind side. And there is no non-material reality out there this would seem to be a, an assumption problematic for Christians, but at least Peter Van Inwagen affirms a materialist view of, of philosophy as a Christian. More popular is a view that's not standard materialism, but what Nancy Murphy calls non-reductive physicalism. Nancy Murphy at Fuller, along with Warren Brown, Newton Maloney, they've written a book on this. They say, we're completely physical, but we have a very, very complex brain that gives rise to soulish functions. Not an actual soul, but soulish functions, including capacity for relationship with God. Now, uh, this view is attracted to them because they think it resolves problems raised by their affirmation of evolutionary creationism. They say, if we affirm an immaterial soul, 
It's perfect. How could evolution come up with that? And so they see difficulty there, so they jettison that to maintain a full evolutionary creationist view. And again, we'll come back to that because there's some evolution creation that don't see that as being necessary. They think there can be a spatially created Adam and Eve along that. But in truth, in philosophy, there's nothing like a consensus there, especially among evangelical philosophy. Alvin Plantinga, after surveying these supposedly, quote, powerful arguments that have moved most from dualism to monism, says the fact is there aren't any powerful arguments. Uh, most of them seem to have very little force. Even the rest don't survive a close look. In fact, the fact is, I think none of the usual objections to dualism has any purchase at all among someone committed to Christian theism. So he said, there's no reason moving from this and said, there, there's a, a huge spectrum out there. And uh, Dr. Welty and Dr. Dew and others can comment on this. But again, uh, uh, from dualists and Plantingham, Richard Swinburne, Stuart Getz, J.P. Moreland, John Cooper, uh, emergent dualism, William Hasker, Dean Zimmerman, constitutionalism and anti-dualism that, that we uh, are, are uh, identical, constituted by our body, but, but not identical to those. And then uh, the previous mentioned non-reductive physicalism of Nancy Murphy, and then the materialism of Peter Van Inwagen. Well, I'll give you some sources there if you want to go further on these. Uh, the book by uh, Brown, Murphy, and Maloney, Whatever Happened to the Soul, uh, Anwigan and Zimmerman edited Persons, Human Identity. That's where the, the essay by Plantiga is in that book. And the most recent one, a 2016 book uh, by Thomas Crisp, Stephen Porter, Greg Tenelshoff, uh, Neuroscience and the Soul, the Human Person in Philosophy, Science, and Theology. So they have a, a section of essays from philosophers, a section from neuroscientists, and, and a section from theologians there. Uh, so that's very helpful. Also, uh, the book I mentioned by Green and Palmer, In Search of the Soul, Perspective on the Mind-Body Problem. So again, uh, here there, there seems to be not one dominant view, uh, but a spectrum, especially among those committed to Christian theism. So I don't think the objection for philosophy uh, should cause us to move to anti-dualist or anthropological monism. How about the challenge from neuroscience? And again, uh, the fact that it's moved me philosophers in the view they've, they've gone has been the challenge raised by neuroscience. Uh, the, the challenge, to put it bluntly, is what used to be seen as mine is being seen as at least correlated with things that are happening in the brain. The person that's written most widely on this is Malcolm Jeeves. He's a psychologist by training, so he has scientific expertise. He's also an evangelical Christian. And so he's written on it widely. Uh, he's been more guarded, more careful than Nancy Murphy. Murphy says nearly all the human uh, capacities, or in fact, once the truth to the soul, are now seen to be functions of the brain. Now, Jesus says, well, the evidence currently available demonstrates a remarkable interdependence between what's happening in physical substrates, brain and body, what's happening in terms of mental pro interdependence. And so, uh, uh, but should this be expected if God made us embodied beings? Should this be a surprise that there's interdependence between mental processes, the non-material aspect, and the material aspect? Again, Plantinga says dependence is one thing, identity quite another. Appropriate brain activity is a necessary condition for mental activity. It simply doesn't follow that the latter is just the former, nor as far as I can see it, is it even rendered probable? Uh, so the idea that this can say a defeater 
for any type of dualism, that doesn't seem to be the case. And probably the key issue among philosophers has been the issue of human consciousness. In the book Neuroscience and the Soul, Eric Larocq has this article, Neuroscience and the Hard Problem of Consciousness. How we can account for consciousness under a non-dualistic understanding has been a challenge. Well, then the three challenges from biblical studies, uh, no unanimity there. Philosophers, spectrum of positions. Neuroscience, not a defeater. So I think none of these are strong to require surrender of all forms of dualism. So this is the challenge to our, our complex constitution. So we've done male and female, uh, complex constitution. At last issue, we are not now as we were created, we are fallen. And so uh, this is, is something uh, uh, that has been a long staple in traditional theology, uh, but increasingly denied uh, by mainline or non-evangelical theology. Uh, Carl Truman, in, in a, a book on Adam the Fault and Original Sin, uh, says he looks from Schleiermacher to Ponenberg, six major theologians, they all just missed the fall, uh, saying that creation was imperfect from the beginning. Human nature has always been fallen. And so that's been standard. What's new is some evangelical scholars rethinking the idea that because of neuroscience, because of evolutionary accounts, we need to require, we revise our traditional theory of origins. John Schneider, in a book in Perspectives on Science Christian Faith, uh, says uh, uh, at the core of this theology of origins is the doctrine of a historical fault. That must be revised in a lot of evolutionary uh, creationism, those types of things. Well, uh, so they're prompted by, by claims like this. So some scholars have gone back and looked carefully at the biblical. And again, uh, the one I will mention here is Joel Green. Uh, he again says, uh, well, if you look at the text, uh, there's not that many texts that talk about a historical fall. And so it's mentioned in uh, Genesis 3, maybe. Romans 5, maybe. But where else? This is the idea of the fall there in Scripture. So he says, uh, we have, have reason to question traditional notions, and Scripture gives us to a very qualified view of original sin. Uh, so uh, uh, this is, is the, the, uh, the movement, and again, uh, feel at least in part by uh, the contentions of evolution and creation. Now, I do want to mention Dennis Alexander. Uh, he says, there are five ways of reconciling Genesis 2 and 3 with evolution and creationism. Three of them use a historical Adam and Eve. So he doesn't think there's a necessary link between evolutionary creationism and denial of historicity for Adam and Eve, those types of things. Uh, moreover, I've always been puzzled by this. You know, I'm not a scientist. I'm a, a, a novice. That would be kind. Yeah? So I can't evaluate their claims. But what evidence would there be scientifically of a fall? Would the fossils look different? Uh, pre and post fall? Uh, would there be uh, cultural artifacts? Near? Well, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden. Would they have left any evidence of their pre-fall state for scientists to find? So I'm not sure that, that the uh, objection, uh, that there's a link between this view of creation and denial of historicity uh, go together. Uh, but beyond that, just theologically, the evidence for a, a historical fault is much stronger than some seem to realize. And did I would call it necessary. Now beyond Genesis 3 and Romans 5, there's a huge theological problem if we deny the fall. 
Uh, James K.A. Smith calls denying the fall inconsistent with the core plot of Scripture. Again, quote, goodness of creation, a fall into sin, redemption of all things in Christ, eschatological consummation of all things. If you drop the fall out, why is there a need for redemption? What are we being redeemed from? Uh, so the difficulty there, Al Walters, again, sees the same disruption. Uh, if we deny a historical fall, uh, we, we have uh, the storyline falls apart. He says, with that, we're able to affirm, quote, evil is not inherent in the human condition. There once was a completely good creation. There will begin. This restoration is not impossible. So the whole Bible storyline begins to fall with a, an actual fall. Furthermore, just in terms of description of the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 3 says, We are by nature children of wrath, deserving of wrath, uh, different translation, by nature deserving of wrath. How can that be if in Genesis 1, God said, all very good. Uh, uh, what, what changes to make us now deserving? Well, the fall. And uh, so without a historical fall, uh, I think these things begin to fall apart, those types of things. Uh, so uh, uh, historical Adam and Eve, I give you some literature there that the Four Views book is a good starting point. For the issue of historical fall, there's only two which they kind of focus on this. Uh, one is by Hans uh, Maduime, if I'm pronouncing his name right there, and Michael Reeves, Adam the Fall, Original Sin, Theological, Biblical, and Scientific Portraits. Again, uh, uh, this is, is a good book, but it only has uh, evangelicals who affirm the fall, and so that there's no other, other view here. And so uh, Schreiner and other evangelicals are there. There's only one scientist who, for some reason, writes under a pseudonym okay, uh, in this book. And so uh, not much scientific portraits there. Uh, so I think the second book I mentioned, a 2017 work, Evolution of the Fall, edited by William Cavanaugh and James K. Smith. Uh, that includes uh, Catholics, liberals, evangelicals, and those that deny traditional fall as well as those that affirm it. In that book, James K. Smith's article is outstanding on what matters, what stands with a historical fall. Uh, so I, I commend that book. That's a better volume for exposing you to both sides of the issue here. Well, then, these are the three issues I've mentioned. Male and female. Complex constitution. Uh, historical fall. Uh, there's lots of other issues about the image of God, about being created to work, all these other issues. Uh, and those and debates may intensify in the future. Uh, and I've not been able to surface all of them in this talk. But I hope this lecture in bibliography will equip you to respond intelligently to these challenges in the days ahead.